0: What is sin? It's a good question. There's no perfect definition to it. Sin is a moral religious decision. I haven't really explored it for myself. To be honest with you, I don't know what sin is. I think it's uh, a personal opinion. I'd say sin is what you feel, you know what I mean? If, if you feel not. that you done did wrong, then that's that's sin, you know? It's just bad. <laughs> sin, sin is, is bad. bad. Doing something that you know is wrong. If you know that it's wrong. They know that it's, that it's wrong. Sin is when you do something that you know is wrong. When you do something that's uh, contrary to what you believe. Do you think that there are some sins that are worse than other sins? Is it all the same? Uh, yeah. Personally, I feel some sins are worse more than others. The quick answer is yes. My Catholic answer would be yes, there's mortal sins, and yeah, so, yeah. Tell me which ones are worse than the others. Um, I would think that killing somebody would be a worse sin than lying to your parents about something. Killing someone. Killing another man. Committing adultery. Theft. Uh, rape. Blaspheme. Blaspheme, that's what I would say. To sit there and say there's not a higher power. That's the ultimate sin. Killing people is worse. Yeah, it's a lot worse than telling a little white lie, I think. Uh, I don't Ah. know. If a sin is a sin, then it's a sin. Sin is sin no matter matter how you look at it. Sin Uh, is uh, sin. Either sin or you don't sin. Is there any consequences for sin? I think so, yes. I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah, it's called karma. It happens to us every day. I I kind of feel in a karma that what comes around goes around. Whether it's a little slam the finger in the door or, or if it's a financial bind or whatever, you know what I mean? So, if you do evil, it might not come back to you right away, but eventually it will. Is there any consequences for sin? I think so, yes. I think it affects the afterlife. In what way? Tell me a little bit about that. I don't think we can know. I don't believe in a heaven or hell, but I think it would be different for everybody. Consequences. That's not for me to perceive, or that's not for me to judge, really. Who am I to judge? you for your sins, or, you know, for my, me for mine. I'm not here to judge who sins and who not sins, you know what I mean? Do you think you're a sinner? Uh, sure, sure, uh, I don't think I'm up there in the, the, the worst sinners, you know, I feel there's some are worse than others. I'm a sinner on little things, but not big things. I guess I am, because I'm not perfect. Do you sin? I'm sure I have, yeah, so everyone does it every once in a while. Do you sin? I do. Um, how often? Every day? Every week? Every day. Daily. It's ridiculous, but yeah. i probably send multiple times today. Every day I go to work. Every day I walk out the door. Are you sending right now, by any chance? No. Is everyone a sinner? I don't, I wouldn't know. Everybody has some kind of sin. We always wanted to sin, so we're all sinners. So I guess we're going to talk about today. (laughs) So some of you are like, man, if I would have left right before the video, nobody would know. Um, So yeah, we're going to talk about this. So go ahead and put your helmets on, put your seatbelts on, um, because we're going to endeavor to do what nobody likes to do. We're going to actually look at things as they are and talk about them as they are and not pretend that they're different than they are. Uh, sin is a word that we hardly ever even use in our culture today. It, it is almost a dead word. And in fact, that was interesting. By the way, you know, that, that video was made in, I don't know, yeah, 50 years ago. Um, <laughs> you know, based on the hairstyles and the clothing and stuff, I'm going with the 90s. But uh, guess what? The answer to the question, what is sin, is still the same today. The answer to the question, what is sin, was the same in the 1890s and in the 1590s and before Christ, and the answer to the question has always been the same, but people have a different view that gets affected by their culture and what they've been taught and what they've uh, thought about it. Did you notice how many people talked about that it, You know, if you do something that you know to be wrong, that, that makes it sin? So if that's the case, if sin is defined as doing something that you know to be wrong, then who does that make the final arbiter of right and wrong? You, right? And and so that gives you a glimpse of just how common that way of thinking is. That I am my own lord, I am my own king, I'm my own boss. I will decide what's right and what's wrong. And then if I do something that I think is wrong, then it's wrong. But if someone else thinks it's wrong, that's their problem. Have you noticed that when people um, get caught publicly, some politician? gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar or some famous person, and there's a scandal and there 's a need for a public apology, and somebody's going to stand up in front of a camera and they 're going to apologize for what they 've done. Um, have you noticed that when that happens, they never seem to use the word sin almost never. Uh, we talk about a mistake or it, the 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 one I really love is listen if if anything I did offended anyone, I'm sorry for that. I'm I'm sorry that you are so stupid to be offended by my behavior, right? Um, To use the word sin would imply that there is a God to whom we are accountable and that sin is somehow defined by him. So we don't use the word sin. We talk about Mistakes and setbacks and things of that nature. And it's not just those outside of the church that are doing it, but churches in general have abandoned the word. We don't talk about it. And the reason we don't talk about it is the way that many of you are feeling right now. It's that sense that somebody is going to come and bang me over the head and tell me what's wrong with me, and nobody likes to be told what's wrong with them and so we just avoid it. And when the church avoids dealing with a topic that turns out to be as significant as this, we are not doing anybody a favor. So let me just be clear. There is no apology for the fact that we're going to talk about sin today. That being said, I'm not going to stand up here and talk about how you are worse than somebody else. Isn't that interesting that the guy said, well, I'm a sinner, but not like, you know, there's a lot of people worse than me, right? And then there was the other lady, she said, um, you know, I'm, I've sinned in little ways, but not big ways, right? Um, and so, you know, good luck with that argument when you're standing before the judgment seat of God, because... Sin, the topic, is a big downer, and so we try to avoid it. But here's what I feel I owe you. Sin is a big deal. And for us to pretend it isn't and to ignore it rather than run the risk of making somebody uncomfortable is not a loving thing to do. We've been studying the book of Genesis together, right? And let's just do some recapping real quick here. Adam and Eve were placed into a perfect environment. They had a perfect relationship with God. They had a perfect relationship with one another, and they had no sin nature. It was unnatural for them to sin, and still they sinned. And then we have the story of Cain who ends up murdering his brother. But before he murders his brother, God does him the the incredible service of coming to him and saying, Cain, I know what's on your heart. I know what you're thinking about doing. Don't do it. Do the right thing and you will be blessed. And still, after being directly confronted and warned by God, he still says, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Because what seems right to me seems right to me. And I'm going to be my own king. And so we see that, that uh, Abel now is dead. We see that Cain's line has been cursed and they're wandering. And so God blesses Adam and Eve with another son, a godly line, in Seth. And we see that the line of Seth goes on for a number of generations until we come to the time of Noah. And what what he says about the world at the time of Noah is that Seth's godly line has become so wicked that uh, every person on earth is just overwhelmed by sin and wickedness and evil. So it doesn't seem to matter if you get a perfect environment, people still sin. And it doesn't seem to matter if we get warned, we still sin. And it doesn't seem to matter how long it goes, it doesn't get better, it gets worse, we still sin. To the point where we we read the story of Noah last week where the whole of mankind has to be wiped out so that God can graciously give us a second chance to start again. So sin is a huge problem. And one of the strategies of Satan has always been to try to convince us that it's really not that big a deal. We live in a culture that tells us that either there is no God and therefore there is no moral authority over us, or that God is not really concerned about such things. How many times have I heard somebody say, you know, well, the God I worship would never judge somebody just for fill in the blank. Now, let me say it again. No matter what Satan may whisper in your ear on this topic, no matter what the cultural influencers have told you, no matter what the movies portray or what your friends say, no matter what your college professor taught you in Philosophy 101, sin is a huge problem. It's poisonous, it's dangerous, it's deadly. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. And the wages of sin was death before the flood. The wages of sin is death after the flood. The wages of sin is death for us today. So we got through eight chapters of the book of Genesis. And by the time we got through Genesis chapter 8, we've already seen rebellion and shame and murder, and curses, and banishments, and lies, and a culture that is so far from God that it has to be utterly destroyed. And as we get to chapter 9, the flood has finished. There is a sense that there is a new day. The sun has come up. The land is dried out. And we see Noah and his family getting off the ark, and they are just starting over. A fresh start with a righteous family. You think sin's going to show up in the story again? It has a way. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 9 and pick it up where we left off. If you brought a Bible with you, Genesis first book, right at the beginning, just turn to Genesis chapter 9. You can look on with somebody next to you if you didn't bring one or just listen, I'll read it to you. Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you So I gave, as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, with its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Let's just stop there. God has an assignment for Noah and his family. It's the same assignment as he had for Adam and his family. Be fruitful, multiply, Fill the earth with people who will worship God, who will love each other, and create an environment, a culture of godliness. We're starting over. The assignment's the same. The vision is the same. A whole earth populated with people who know God and who treat each other accordingly. But there are going to be some changes. If we we look at chapter 9, we see that God says it's not going to be the same as it was before the flood. One thing is, man is going to have a different relationship to animals than what he had in the past. Look at verse 2. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. God says there's going to be a natural inclination in wild animals to keep their distance from people. They're going to understand that they need to reverence man. And so this is why if you're on a hiking trail and you come up around a bend and there's a couple of deer over there just nibbling on the grass and you move toward them, what do they do? Boom, they're gone, right? They're gone. My mother-in-law lives out in the Mojave Desert, and she lives way in the desert. There are like no roads to get to her house. She is in the desert. And there are just, you know, cactuses and creatures. That's about it. And one day, we were at their home, and I was sitting on the porch. We're all sitting out on the front porch in the evening. And I got up to go into the house, and as I got up, I started to step down, And as I lifted my foot to step off the porch, I heard a rattling sound. And I looked down, and there was a Sidewinder rattlesnake right under my foot. And I jumped back. Now, I know you don't think I could jump. (laughs) I'm telling you, I learned I could jump. If I'd had a basketball, I would have dunked it. I jumped backwards. But the interesting thing was, That snake, that venomous, poisonous snake that had really the ability to kill me, did not chase me. He took off like a scared rabbit. He was gone. Somehow, in spite of his ability to kill me, he had a sense that he needed to get away from people because they're more afraid of you that you are of them. And that's saying something, because I'm telling you, I pretty much wet myself that day. (laughs) So something changes about the relationship man and animals have. There's a disruption there. And then in verse three, it tells us um, that animals are now food for men. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. I don't know if you ever noticed this in Genesis, but up until this point, man is a vegetarian. The way that it was designed was that mankind was not supposed to eat animals. Death was never supposed to be a part of the earthly experience in any way. The wages of sin is death. There was no death until after sin took uh, its place in the story. And uh, now, after the flood, God says, you can eat Any animal there is, which also may surprise you because probably you're thinking, wait a minute, I thought the Old Testament taught that some animals are unclean and other animals are clean. Aren't there animals that we're not supposed to eat? Well, now you've skipped ahead in the story. Now you're ahead to the part where Israel becomes a nation, and God says, I want some ways to set you apart, so I'm going to give you the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is designed to set the nation of Israel apart and remind them that they are a people who is set apart to God, and therefore there are some things about their culture that are different than the Gentiles, and that's when the dietary law comes in. And in the time of Jesus... He wipes out the dietary law and he says, it is not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of your heart, right? And later in Acts, we see Peter has this vision and God lowers this group of animals before him in the vision and says, eat these. And he says, I can't eat those. I'm a Jew, And God says, never again call unclean what I have called clean. And now it is time where that distinction between Jew and Gentile is being wiped away. So the ceremonial law is no longer necessary. In fact, it's a a hindrance to what God is doing in the church. He wants to erase those distinctions. And so once again, he brings back the freedom to eat anything. So there's no restrictions at the time of Noah but we're told that we can eat anything. Another thing happens. In verse five, capital punishment is introduced. Surely I will require your life blood from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So it's interesting that he says uh, if somebody's brother murders him, that brother will be put to death. Why? Why say a brother? Because we have one story of murder so far, and it's a brother, right? He's saying, listen, I, I, have, I, I warned Cain, and I said, don't do this, and he did it anyway. And then I allowed him to wander the earth. But that is changing, Because man is made in the image of God, because human life is so incredibly valuable, for that reason, I am going to hold people to the ultimate accountability if they commit murder. Now, listen, I realize that in a room this size, there are tons of opinions about capital punishment. And I'm not here to argue whether there ought to be capital punishment in the state of California or in the United States. That's not the point that God's making here. It's not the point that I'm making. I understand that there are some dangers with capital punishment, that people make wrong decisions. That's not what all of this is about. This is God saying, let me tell you how much you should value every other human being. That whatever's the highest penalty we can impose will be imposed on those who take the life of another person through murder. Now look at verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Now if you're a person who writes in your Bible, and I recommend it, circle that word covenant, highlight it, underline it, put a star by it, whatever it is you do. Because you're going to find that word coming up in the writings of Moses again and again and again and again. And what we're going to see is that our God is a covenant-making God, and He is a covenant-keeping God, and that every time He enters into a covenant with man, where man has responsibility on one side and God has responsibility on another, man always breaks the covenant, but God always keeps the covenant. In this case, man doesn't even have a side to it. This is just a gift God is giving. And God is is making uh, an oath here. And he says, I'm gonna make a covenant with you that I will never again wipe out the earth with a flood. Verse 10, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you that uh, comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, "'This is a sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud.' And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. Listen. If you have even an eighth grade education, you can explain the rainbow. You understand how prisms work and what happens when light passes through water droplets and and the the spectrum of the colors that we see. We all learned it in sixth grade science. And so we look at a story like this and we say, God's saying, I put this bow, and we go, this is a fairy tale Because now we understand where that rainbow comes from. Then they didn't understand, so they believed this crazy story. Let me be clear about something. We see this in creation, and now we see it in this covenant with the rainbow. Just because we understand how something works doesn't mean God didn't do it. It was so important for us to understand Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If God is the creator of all things, of course he designed the science behind the spectrum and the rainbow. And he gives it on the first time that there is rain upon the earth as a way of saying, every time you see this phenomenon that I have created, you need to be reminded that I am a gracious and kind and loving God and I will be patient even though man is sinful and I will not wipe out man with a flood again. So they leave the ark. After leaving the ark, they begin farming and they begin multiplying. You had no idea there was so much math in the Bible, right? Multiply, multiply. So they they begin farming and multiplying. Uh, And and look at verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. Enough time has passed now. They don't give us dates here, but this is between the time that they left the ark and now this time. Enough time has passed. It has been a number of years, and we know that because they planted vineyards, and the vineyards are already um, uh, giving wine, and that's a matter of three to five years at least. And we also know that Ham has had a son So this next generation has begun, and we're told about this son Canaan. While the others are not mentioned, there are probably other children as well, but some time has passed, and uh, they planted a vineyard, and they started producing grapes. Uh, Verse 20, Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. Verse 21, he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside the tent. So if you're visiting with us today... (laughs) You just picked a day in which I'm gonna talk about all this weird stuff, then you're gonna go, man, I'm never coming back to that place. Okay, this is weird. He they make wine, he gets drunk. Now, let's just stop there for a second so that we don't just pass this up without comment. Some people think that alcohol is forbidden for all followers of God. Nowhere in the scripture are we told that. Okay? So you can make your arguments however you want. You cannot make a biblical argument that says people are forbidden from drinking alcohol. There's no sin in drinking alcohol, according to Scripture. However, abusing alcohol is another thing. We are, we are commanded not to get drunk with wine. Ephesians 5:18. Now, you may be saying, tequila is my drink. <laughs> <laughs> to which God says, don't push it, dude. <laughs> right? So, so drunkenness is a problem. And the reason that drunkenness is a problem, which many of us can attest to from experience, is that drunkenness is a sin that leads to more problems. Amen? Amen. Uh, it, it, it's always the case. Even when you wake up the next morning and don't remember what you did... Somebody remembers what you did, and it's a problem, right? Even when you're just going to drive a couple blocks, and you end up in jail. See, alcohol abuse leads to problems, and that's what we see unfolding in this story. Noah, for whatever reason, drank too much, and he became drunk and passes out naked in his tent. And you would think, why tell us this? Well, because it leads to more problems. Um, In this case, Noah's poor judgment led to his drunkenness, and that sin led to all sorts of other problems as it often does. Uh, Genesis 9, verse 20. It's about to get weirder. Then Noah began farming, planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, "'Cursed be Canaan and servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers.'" He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now this is a weird story. You say, what what happens here? I have no idea. (laughs) But but something inappropriate happened here, and we're not told what it is. We do know that uh, certainly in ancient Near Eastern culture, and in most cultures around the world today, respect for parents is of utmost importance. Uh, And we do know that somehow he came in, looked upon his father's nakedness, whatever is meant by that, and then went back out and told his brothers about it, okay? Now, there's a million theories out there about what was so terrible about what he did. Some people say there was some sort of sexual act involved, but it's a guess. It doesn't say that. Some people say, no, it's just the disrespect. Not only does he look upon his father's nakedness, which is a complete no-no, but then he goes out of the tent and tells his brothers, you should see dad's wasted and naked in the tent, right? (laughs) We don't know. I don't know what led to such a harsh judgment here. And we don't know exactly what happened, but apparently it was really inappropriate. And here's another thing we don't know we don't know why Canaan was cursed for his father's behavior. Canaan was introduced just a few verses earlier when it seemed odd to introduce him in the first place when none of the others were mentioned. And then, and then when, when we mention Ham here, we're told he's Ham, the father of Canaan. Not that he's Ham, the son of Noah, which is the way they're always introduced. But he's introduced as Ham, the father of Canaan. Apparently, Canaan is important. And Canaan gets cursed. Now, here's what we do know. That's the what we don't know stuff. You get some of that every week in Genesis. Genesis. But here's what we do know. Canaan's descendants were cursed. And why would that have been important to Moses' original readers? When Moses is writing this, remember, this is book one of a five-book series that Moses wrote during the time of the wilderness. And Moses is writing this, and his original intended audience is the nation of Israel, the Semitic people, the descendants of Shem. And they are a nation now about to go into the promised land and wipe out a whole people group called the Canaanites in the land of Canaan. So at the time that he wrote this, the children of Israel were very intrigued by what is it about Canaan that makes him worthy of having his land taken away? And was it about us that gives us this land? And Moses is telling them the story as it goes all the way back to right after the time of the ark. So they needed a context to understand what was happening in their own lives. Once again, we are not given as much information as we would like to have here. And the reason is because it has nothing to do with the point of the story. The point of the story is that God decreed that the descendants of Shem would be served by the descendants of Canaan. And it helps us to see why the promised land is promised in the first place. So this is similar to the stories we've already seen in Genesis. God is showing incredible patience with the Canaanites because this curse happens now and then generations pass by. And all that while the, the people of Canaan are in the land flowing with milk and honey. And they don't repent, and they don't repent, and they don't repent, and they keep on becoming more and more wicked as the downward spiral goes to the point where now they are sacrificing their children to false gods. And that's what's happening at the time when the Jews come into the promised land. And so God is showing incredible patience with the Canaanites. Um, So when we see later in Scripture the way that God wiped out the people of Canaan, let's not forget the context God showed remarkable restraint where they're concerned. And so we come to chapter 10, and if your Bible has headings in it, it might might say, uh, you know, the table of nations. The table of nations we get in Genesis chapter 10, and and basically it's genealogies, it's a whole bunch of names that you don't want to hear me try to pronounce. Um, And and we get all these um, generations given to us. Um, But basically what happens in this chapter is that Noah's three sons become 70 nations. And all that happens for us right before our eyes in chapter 10 through the genealogies. I want you to notice something. Pick up verse 15 in chapter 10. Canaan, now we're going to get his genealogy. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. And afterwards, the families of the Canaanites were spread abroad. If you've read your Old Testament, you have heard those names before, right? Those are the people who were inhabiting the land of Canaan. When Israel is given the promised land. So Moses is telling us a grand story here. And he's given us these hints to help us understand what is happening later. As we come to chapter 11, we're once again confronted with more questions than answers. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth used to use the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, what I need to tell you, first of all, as we're trying to understand Genesis in its totality, is that the, the chronology here is a little bit clunky. We're not really sure exactly what comes before what in chapter 10 and chapter 11, because at the end of chapter 10, we're told that these are the list of these uh, people groups by their names, by their nations, and by their languages. But then in chapter 11, we're immediately told everybody spoke the same language at this time. So the best we can do with this, and we're not sure, is that we think that we have chapter 10, which says, hey, listen, there's this huge thing that happens over time where three men become 70 nations by the generations, and a lot of years pass in chapter 10's story, right? And in chapter 11, he says, let me zoom in and show you a little piece of the story I just told you in chapter 10. Okay? He does the same thing in Genesis chapter 2. After telling us in chapter 1 that God created everything in six days, then he zooms in in chapter 2 and says, now let me show you about when he created man, because that's special. That's important to the story. And it seems that he's doing the same thing here. That's the best I can do with this. We're not really sure. Um, But that seems to be the case. So it seems like these people have uh, come together, all speaking one language, and they have decided to start a city in a place called Shinar, which is basically ancient Mesopotamia. And they're going to build a great city, and this great city is going to have a huge tower, and they had those, uh, what do they call those? Ziggurat? Right? Did I get that right? Is that what they call those? Those sort of towers, pyramid kind of towers, and... and. Um, They start to build this thing and they're going to build it so high that the top goes to the sky. Uh, and, And there's a lot we don't know about this. But what we do know is the reason they were building this city and this great tower that reaches past the sky is to make a name for themselves. Okay? We want people to know that We are a great people. We want people to know that we are powerful. And all it takes is a little bit of basic high school level study of ancient Near Eastern history to know that uh, when these cities started emerging around Mesopotamia, that area, that um, they commonly built towers of various types and that those towers were high. They were the highest thing in the city. And those towers were usually either a temple in which they worshipped or dedicated to their gods. And the idea was that the higher the tower, the more mighty was your god. So if we were a people make a great name for ourselves and we're going to lift up the gods that we worship, our local gods, and we're going to build this great tower that is so tall, it goes into the sky. Okay, That's what we do know. And we also know that God wasn't happy about the direction things were going. So he steps in and does something about it. He'd already promised not to destroy mankind again until the last days, but he wanted to do something to intervene and get them off this path. So look at verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Don't miss the wording there in verse 5. This tower is tall, it reaches to the sky. It's the tallest thing any of them have ever seen. It makes them a great name and it's dedicated to their God. It's so tall, in fact, that when the one true God needs to deal with it, he has to come down. Don't miss that. God came down to deal with the threat of these little pseudo-gods, right? That's important. And now he goes about scattering the people He confuses the languages. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse uh, 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they all have the same language, this is what they began to do, and now nothing uh, which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad uh, from there, over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there, the Lord God caused the language of the whole earth, uh, confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, how he scattered them, how he confused the language, we don't know. There's a bunch of theories out there. One of them might be true. We don't know for sure. So all we're going to say is that somehow God confused the language, scattered the people, and divides them into like little groups of people who don't have the same uh, power as when they were all together. Uh, and, the, and verses 10 through 25 give us the generations of Shem. Okay, Again, I'm not going to read all of that to you because it's a bunch of names that you can't pronounce and I can't pronounce. Uh, and, but they are the Semitic people, the descendants of Shem, the Semites. And, and so they are the people out of which come the line of Abraham, which comes the nation of Israel, out of which comes the Messiah. And the story is now going to zero in on that line. And so we're not going to spend much time here, but the focus of the story is about to shift from the descendants of Noah to the line that leads to Messiah. Um, and in chapter... Twelve. well, at the, really in chapter 11, we meet a guy named Abram. And we're told that Abram and his wife Sarai are not able to have children. And that's going to prove to be a really important part of the story. But before we get there, let's take stock in what we've read in these first 11 chapters. In the beginning, God. So we're setting it up again. Remember, the purpose of the writing of these five books by Moses is to make the case that there is one God, and he is the creator of all things. It is a, it is a declaration against paganism. That's what these five books are. In the beginning, God. God makes a mankind in his image, Adam and Eve. Man rebels against God and suffers the consequences Man's offspring rebels against God and suffers the consequences. And over the course of nearly two millennia, rebelling against God becomes the norm, and people suffer the consequences. Until we get to this point where all of mankind is wiped out, save Noah and his family, through the ark. But almost immediately, sin begins to dominate the picture again. Apparently, based on our first 11 chapters, sin is a pretty powerful thing. And even though we don't like to think about sin or take responsibility for sin, it continues to be a hugely negative factor in the life of every single human being. Here's what we know about sin so far. One, we're born with it. Now, a lot of people disagree with this. They say, no, no, we're not born sinful. Haven't you ever seen a newborn baby? I mean, ba- I'll, I'll give it, babies are cute, except for the ugly ones. But, <laughs> but generally speaking, and you say, this is, this is the picture of innocence, right? And then you take that little monster home. <laughs> and and ha- as parents, don't you know, you never had to train your child to wake up the whole family in the middle of the night because she was hungry? You never had to tell her to do that. You never had to teach her to beat her little brother over the head with a toy truck, right? She figured that one out on her own. And, and we see in children an unbelievable example, as wonderful as they are, and as much as our hearts as parents are drawn to them, so we don't kill them, right? Um, they are incredibly selfish beings. And you know what little babies, selfish babies grow up to be? Big selfish babies like us right? That's our experience. And it's also what the scripture tells us, right? We saw in Genesis chapter 8, when he's talking about the reason to wipe out the world, that all of the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually from his childhood, it says. In Psalm 51, when David is confessing his own sin, he says, I was a sinner from my mother's womb, right? So there's not this sense of people are basically good. And if you just give them a good environment, they will behave appropriately. We've just seen 11 chapters that proves that is not true. God just keeps giving them a good environment and they keep throwing it in his face. And so um, number one, we have this problem with sin. We're born with it. Number two, even though we're born with it, we choose it. We always want to shift the blame, just like Adam and Eve. Remember, Adam messes up the whole thing? God comes to him and goes, Adam, what the heck happened here? And Adam goes, That woman you gave me. Right? <laughs> and men have been blaming their wives for stuff since then. And wives have been blaming their husbands, and everybody's pointing the finger at somebody. It's all somebody else's fault. And we just we just carry this through in our culture. Yes, I know that you've been abusive to all the women in the relationships you've been in in the last 10 years, but it's not your fault because your father abused you when you were a kid and that's so you can't help it. Guys, not only is that patently untrue, it's incredibly unhelpful because all that allows me to do is what I want to do, point the finger at somebody else and I'm not accountable, and therefore I don't believe I can ever change, and because I don't believe I can ever change, I am stuck in a trap, and this is the best life I can live. And God says, no, I came to give you life abundantly. So we're gonna have to deal with the fact that we're born sinners, and we choose to be sinful. At some point, we have to go, you know what? I can break the chain. I don't have to be like the person who hurt me. Listen, I'm not being trite here, I'm not being silly. All of us have scar tissue. Every one of us has been abused and mistreated at some point in our lives. Wouldn't it be awful if that meant we could never live an abundant life? That's not what it means. But we're going to have to face up to the fact that I'm guilty of my choices to sin. Third thing, we're blinded by sin. We looked at this a couple weeks ago in Romans 1. We won't get into it that much today. But Romans 1 tells us basically that man starts out with all this light, this spiritual light that God gives him, and that man just steps into the darkness. And that from the darkness now, he's forfeited a certain amount of light. And from there, he steps further into the darkness. And God just allows us to make choices for our own lives and we keep stepping out of the light. And the further from the light you go, the less light you have to perceive God. And so we're blinded by sin to the point where we just get in a habit of living a certain way and we think that's how we have to live. And we don't know any better. Fourth thing, and we'll wrap it up, we are born in sin, we choose sin, we're blinded by sin, and we're enslaved by sin. See, why, why would a guy like me want to take a day when you got all these nice people who come, some of you are visiting for the first time, and talk about something like sin, which could be so offensive. The reason I want to talk about it is because it enslaves us. And Jesus came to set us free. And see, sin works like a, an animal trap that's set in the forest. There's some sort of sticky, sweet substance put in the trap and some leaves are thrown in there until some bear comes and, and gets in that trap and as soon as he does snap, it shuts, up, it shuts up on his leg and he can't move. And it holds him and he can't get himself out. Such is the nature of sin. So we could sit here and say, I don't want to offend anybody by telling anybody they're a sinner. I'm not telling you you're a sinner. I'm telling you we're sinners and we don't need to be enslaved by it. And what we're going to see when we turn the page and get into chapter 12 and we start to see this movement toward the Messiah coming is that God didn't design us to stay enslaved by it. He has made a way to get us out. And so the rest of the story, with all of its ups and downs and all of it, it is marching just straight forward to a beautiful light place that says God is not going to leave us where we put ourselves. We don't have to be enslaved to sin. There's a person named Jesus Christ who did what it takes to set us free. That's the truth. That's the beauty of this whole story, which so far has been so incredibly dark it leads us to a savior. But we're never going to find that savior and experience that salvation and that grace and that real life until we're willing to admit I am a sinner. I was born this way and I choose sin. And I've been living in blindness and I'm enslaved. And Lord, I need to be set free. And if that's you today and you find yourself going, wow, that that really tells my story. I do need to be set free because I keep trying and I'm failing and I just can't seem to make myself good enough. Listen, you're never going to be good enough. The time has come to let go and lift your hands and say, I surrender and let your dad pick you up because you can't make it on your own. God offers you that today. And so if that's where you are, I just want to encourage you to let him lift you up. And if you find yourself in a place where you're still saying, well, this is starting to make sense to me, but I'm not sure I fully understand and I still got some questions, keep coming back because we're going to keep digging in and we're going to see what God's word has to tell us. And when you get exposed to truth, the light just seems to come back. So keep coming back and bring somebody with you next time. Let's stand and we'll pray together. Father, we're so thankful that you haven't left us where we are. Thank you that we can look in the book of Genesis and see our story told again and again. But thank you, God, that the story does not end here. Thank you that you never lose uh, your love for us. You never run out of grace. You never run out of kindness. Your power is never thwarted. And that you have decided to offer us eternal life. And so, Father, I pray for every heart here where people might be grappling and struggling with this, this challenge, where the enemy maybe is whispering lies, where experience tells us, I got hurt when I tried to trust someone before. God, I pray that you would just make yourself known, make yourself known to each of our hearts and help us to trust you, to, to once again, like a child, lift up our hands and let our daddy pick us up. We need you, Lord. And so fill us with your love, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.